back. Pulls up the three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Hello and welcome to the MPP cast from me, Mark Woods, and we've got a very special guest on this edition. He remains 23 years after his playing retirement, unquestionably the greatest player in BBL history in the eyes of almost everyone who was around there, the native of San Francisco who lit up the courts of the UK for almost two decades, a point guard who made up in heart and skill what he may have lacked in size, but he is the one and the only Alton Burt. Alton, welcome to the MPP cast. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good to be on your podcast. Where in the world do we find you? Well, as of right now, I'm sitting in California. Um, my wife's um, parents are here. So I left New York last Saturday uh, and we got here over the weekend. And, you know, we're kind of holed up here in a shelter in place in California um, and normally you'd find me in New York preparing for either you know the G League postseason or you would find me preparing for Brooklyn's postseason hopefully um, but I've been in New York now for this will be year five uh, after April 1st so um, home for a little while in California but normally in New York. Let's go into that. I want to talk to you about your, your current position with, with the Brooklyn Nets organization, specifically the Long Island Nets of the G League as well. But let's talk about your time in the BBL. I mean, it, it was a phenomenal career and you were there, but most of us still refer to as the glory days of, of the BBL. For you, when you, you're arriving there in 79 at Crystal Palace, you're coming out of Columbia University, which for people who don't know is an Ivy League school. It's a proper university, a proper education. And you rocked up in London. But the strange thing was that you didn't really come here with the intention of being a, a professional basketballer in the way that you eventually became. That's true, actually. Um, an alum of Columbia reached out to me in April of 1979 said, hey, I have a, an organization, a company, a multinational organization. I'm looking for mid-level managers. Um, our, our organization and company is based in London. Would you have any interest in moving to London? And I said, you know, I'm happy to take a look at it, but I'm not quite sure whether it's for me. I came over to visit in May of 1979. I will openly say that I was not fond of the opportunity. Um, I went I, I went back to the States. I then got drafted by the Boston Celtics. I thought I would give it a shot um, and did give it a shot, but he was persistent um, and said, look, if you don't make the Celtics, which I hope you do not make the Celtics, um, I would love for you to come and work here in the UK and while you're here, I own a little basketball team called Crystal Palace, and would you be interested in playing? And I was like, it doesn't interfere with work. I don't make the NBA. Sure. Um, I, I lay about one thing. Actually, while I was – when I went to visit the U.K., he asked me to play in a um, friendly for Crystal Palace at Gillingham Sports Center, which was brand new. Um, and the Duke of Kent was opening the Gillingham Sports Center. 
and uh, I got a chance to to play at Gillingham for that one game, and then went back. And you know, August uh, I went to camp. I got cut. Actually, got hurt the night before I went to camp. Broke to Boston's camp. Got cut, um, and a week later, arrived in the UK to go on the road um, on the famous Crystal Palace road trips, preseason road trips by car throughout Europe. So we played in Brussels, we played in Germany, we stayed in the Olympic Stadium in Berlin. Um, so that's how it got started. Um, I had no intention of being there for any longer than a year and ended up staying 20. I mean, David Dubov was the, the guy that brought you in that owned Crystal Palace at the time. And you know, how did he sell you on... Not, I mean, not not just the the basketball side of this, but hardly sell you on the idea of combining a day job with playing basketball. Because you know, you know, for a young bright man as you coming across the pond, you want to start building a career. You want to start building your resume. I mean, was was it a, t- a tough sell to say, well, you know, you you have to practice so many nights a week, or you know, maybe you might have to take time off. And what what was the sales pitch? Um, the sales pitch was. Uh, this is a career opportunity. You will um, do a year, maybe two, as a management trainee, and then you will be um, dispersed to one of our offices around the world. And he had offices in Japan. He had offices in South America. He had offices in throughout the United States. Um, he said, obviously, you do your management training, and then you can pick an office. Um we have openings in Japan. We have openings in uh, Pennsylvania. So you could go back to the States. We have offices in Frankfurt. So that was his pitch. Um, and at the end of it all, David said, you know, hey, this team that I, that I am a very quiet supporter and financier of Crystal Palace is, is, might be looking for a player. I don't think David Last and Terry Doherty were believers when, you know, David said, hey, I got a point guard that might be really good here. Um, I don't think they were the first ones to sign up for it. (laughs) When I I played in Gillingham, and I think Terry Doherty said, yeah, I think we might be on to something here. Um, And it kind of mushroomed from there, you know, like when I got back in August and we went on tour and, we won a bunch of tournaments. We won, I think, two of the three tournaments we played in. And at the time, teams just didn't sign point guards. Everybody, remember, it was two Americans, and the two Americans were usually a power forward and a center, or it was a power forward and a small forward, but both of them had to score 20 a night to keep their jobs. And here I was, a point guard, um, and – you know, it kind of took off, you know, it was kind of speed kills from there. And I just ran around the court and tried to make sure I got the right people to ball. And it, it turned out better than David thought. It turned out better than I thought. I think it turned out pretty good for Crystal Palace. Um, and I will tell you that, you know, nobody knew what it was going to turn into when it all started. I don't think David did. And David passed away in December of 1981. Um, And I don't think anybody had any idea that 
basketball would kind of all of a sudden take off. And it literally all of a sudden took off. Because what was that trajectory like? Because it was three years away from when most of us, myself included, discovered the BBL on a Monday night, Channel 4, you know, the second half of games, which, you know, it was it was quite magical and it opened basketball's you know, audience up to, to a whole different sphere in the UK. But you know, that, that was just before. I mean, how did you see that trajectory? I mean, you were there pretty much for that from the, when it was fairly obscure, let's be kind about it, to something that really took off. When was the first point when you sort of sensed, hold on, this is breaking out of the darkness and the shadow into, into the spotlight? So... I'm I'm going to say probably the second year I was at Crystal Palace, we were playing at Wembley. The finals were at Wembley, and we played all over the country, and people were coming out like, you know, we were playing in sports centers, but those sports centers were packed. And, you know, we were kind of, at the time, the Chicago Bulls of Britain. We were like, <laughs> the Rolling Stones, we'd roll into town and people would come to see us. And, you know, we played fun basketball. It was the quintessential, the little guy, you know, who's against all odds. And I think the British kind of really warmed to that. Fast forward to 1982 when Channel 4 launches its channel um, and kind of says, well, we want up and coming sports. We want to do things that are different. Derek Brandon, who was a producer, said, I want to cover basketball differently. Um, and we started playing on Channel 4. I had left and gone to Scotland, but Channel 4 kind of took off and ran with it. But the three years that I played at Crystal Palace, the first time round, you couldn't get a ticket to Wembley. You know, there were 10,000 people at Wembley. Um, the games were packed. Um, it was a buzz. And I think that second year, after my first year, and people said they got a good player. Birmingham had a good team with Greg White and John Stroder. You know, there were there were good players. There were guys that were, you know, capable. They were better than G League guys, fringe, you know, NBA guys. And we had some guys who played in the NBA or at least had a, a good, strong look through training camp who were playing in in the league. And that second year, I'm going to say 80-81, the Phillips made a huge difference because you saw, you know, one year you had North Carolina with James Worthy and, you know, Al Wood. Uh, you had Maccabi Tel Aviv. So you, you had landmark events that made, uh, made it must-watch TV and must-have tickets. Um, and... At 80-81 season, I was there 79-80. season, I think, was this might be bigger than all of us think it is. And Crystal Palace was the standard then. Myself, Paul Stimson, Dan Lloyd, Pete Jeremick, um, Mark Sayers. That was the standard. Then Solent became really good. Birmingham was good. Like, you could, you know, there were, there were rivalry games that, you know, were testy but competitive. What's that like? I mean, that's on the coat, off the coat. You're a, whatever, 21, 22, 23-year-old, rocking up in London. That must have been fun. It was. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my, um, my existence was I lived in Morden my first year, 
Then I moved into central London and I thought like, this is the greatest, this is the greatest existence you could have. Flat in central London, drove to practice. We practiced two nights a week. We played games two days a week. Um, and, you know, the rest of the time is pretty much your own. Um, but being in central London meant you could walk up and down Oxford Street. You could, I literally lived just behind um, Oxford Street on Wimpole Street. Um, and I like for the year that I lived, a year and a bit that I lived, almost two years that I lived back there, it was phenomenal. Like people would come to town who were opposing players and they'd stay at my flat and <laughs> go out and we'd hang out. And it was, it was pretty good. Uh, I, I will say it was really good. Um, and I had a lot of fun those two years. And, you know, frankly, when I came back, to London in 1989, 1988, 89. I was, I was really happy to be back, but the, the first couple of years, unbelievable, just unbelievable. I mean, we didn't have the kind of cross contamination of basketball that we have now. I mean, it's, it's a global game now. It wasn't so much at that point in time. So you're, when you're coming into the, into this league and you've got guys who have stood the test of time as your teammates in this game. You've said Paul Stimson, Dan Lloyd, Mickey Bett as well. I think was there. You guys who have, have like yourself, people know them as all-time greats. But I guess arriving here, you know nothing about the standards. Did it surprise you that the, the British players were, especially at that time, were as good and as polished as, as they were? Um, it did. I, I think, you know, British basketball then was at a standard that could be lifted. Um, and what you didn't have was the interpretation issue that if you played in Germany or played in France and people were trying to figure out, there, there was no style in Britain that couldn't be molded. And, and once myself, um, Kevin, some of the coaches, um, you know, Vic Tinsley was our coach my first year. You know, you look at some of the coaches, Jody Gardner, Tom Schneeman, most of those guys, Kevin Cadle, obviously, but most of those guys were good teachers of the game and helped push British players faster. Now, there were more dual nationals than you care to know about. And there's some people that said, well, I set the game back. And I'm like, I, I, I'm sorry. But if you would ask Paul Stimson, if you would ask Steve Hansel, if you would ask players who played against either dual nationals or Americans, the better the competition you play against, the better you get. So I thought there were a ton of players and there's a whole generation of British kids, British dads who played against us and played with us during our duration, whose kids now play in the United States. There's probably 130, 140 mm -hmm. kids of British descent who are playing college basketball here, their parents watched us play or played against us. And the dream of going to the States or going somewhere else to play was born out of them playing against us or watching us play. So I thought the standard was average. Within three years, I thought we had probably half dozen players that were good enough to play in Europe as EEC players, you know, I thought Stimps in his prime was good enough to play anywhere in Europe. You know, um, I thought Mickey 
if he didn't have a day job and he could devote full time to basketball, same thing. Pete Jeremick, same thing. Um, and think about the junior program that Crystal Palace had when we when when I got there with Bucknell and Joel Moore and you know Basil Phillips and all of those kids came through Roy Packham's junior program. You know, then you had Humph Long in East East London, and think about all of those kids. So, out of those, out of that group, in that 1979 to 1984, there were like probably 200 kids. You know, it then created Brixton, and out of Brixton came another 50 to 100 kids over the last 20 years that have turned into something. So. I think the the standard of play got to be better. And I think overall people made the commitment to we got we've got to improve training, we've got to improve coaching, we've got to improve our level of play. Most importantly, we can't be frightened of the fact that we now have really good players who are here. Um and I think people just wanted an opportunity to improve the platform to improve the, the, the standards, the coaching standards to be better. Um, and I think that's how it, it, it really turned out and evolved. I think one of the things that was very consistent about all the stops that you had was you always made teams better. And you know, obviously being a you know, point guard, you, you're influencing the system, you're influencing the play on the floor. But I mean, what, what kind of, where did that drive for you come from to, not just to win, but to, to win as part of a, of a team and to, to, to make people around you fit, or, you know, fit with you in a way that would maximize their abilities as well. Um, uh, some of it was familial. Um, you know, my mom was, um, kind of taught us that you, you can do anything. You just can't do it. You can't do everything and you need help. And I think in my family, we've always been, how can we help somebody? And I think as a point guard, I learned, like, there are great point guards. Like, I love Russ Saunders of death. Um, and I think Russ could, and probably had to, score 30 a night for his teams to be competitive. Um, the difference for me was um, – if I could elevate the level of play of the guys that I've played with, we'd have a better chance of winning because I know for a fact that point guards who score a lot of points don't win a lot of championships, but the guys who elevate other players and who make other players better, if I could make Paul Stimson and, and force him to believe in himself, if I could do that with Bob Roma, if I could do that with Sam Fogg and if I could do that with Ralton way, we'd be better. They play harder at the defensive end, especially if they got rewarded at the offensive end. So my goal and my role was, how do I do the things that will help us win? And how do I help our team get better? And how do I make sure that they are involved throughout? How do I help them? How do I create? And that's always been a mantra. It was that way in high school. Was that way in college and then when I got to Europe I thought my career would be lengthened if I did a lot of things that people maybe don't see but you know guys could see that hey if I do this Alton's got my 
back. Um, I always thought that if I was a disruptive defender, that it would help people um, and help our guys. So that's how, like my mom taught me, you can do anything. You just can't do everything. And if you go into situations with that and you collaborate and you're willing to share, um, you will have a much better chance of being successful. I mean, you're coming out of college, and I guess this applies to coming out of high school as well. I mean, that one of the perception issues you were fighting, of course, was being undersized. And yeah, you know, I guess you would wonder if you'd been, as the song goes, just that little bit taller. Would you've got drafted mm-hmm. higher? Would you've got a better shot in the NBA? But you know, I wonder if that, if there was ever a drive for you to try and prove people wrong because of that. Um, you know, it's funny. I, when I was in high school, I was a little bit of a prodigy because people knew I had really good ball skills and they knew I had quickness. You know, the one thing that you can't teach, you can't teach size. You can try to teach speed, but sometimes you, you, you know, if, if you are a speedster, it helps and speed and quickness in the NBA helps speed and quickness in basketball helps. So, um, what I lacked in size, I wasn't, I was never frightened. Um, I was, I guess to some people fearless, um, I, in high school, I was even smaller, but we won a central coast section championship. We had really good players and I was the smallest guy on the floor and we won and, and we beat teams that really we had no, no business beating. But we knew, like I knew, you know, my drive was people can tell you you're too small, just like people can say you're too tall for certain things. And I knew that if I was good enough at my craft, we would win. And I had to be good enough and collaborative enough and willing to do things that other people didn't want to do. And that's that's where I got it from. I never kind of, you know, people say all the time, I was too small, I'll take him in the post. And then I figured out how to defend in the post. And you can get way more disruptive, you know, in the post than, you, than most small people think. Um, so, you know, that that's how I came to, hey, this is, this is how I want to go about doing this. You leave Crystal Palace. You got to Murray International where at the time we're playing Bayern in the middle of, of Edinburgh at the old Meadowbank Stadium as, as as was. Four years there, you get four or five Scottish titles, four British titles, you playing in the European Cup. But how did that move come about? Because people people who don't know him, I mean, the Murray and that is David Murray, who for a long time owned Glasgow Rangers Football Club. But his first love was very much basketball. He was a basketball nut. So how, what was the persuasion factor that came into it when, you know, they presumably call you up and, and say, fancy Scotland? Um, so Alan Bailey, who was my teammate at Palace, I don't know if you remember Alan, but that first year we had Alan Bailey, who was a Scot. We had Mark Sayers, Jeremy, Dan Lloyd. I mean, we had a hoop. And so Alan leaves after my first year to go to Scotland um and Allen went for career purposes because David offered him a job as a steel wholesale trader so Allen went David's whole mantra was I want the best team in Britain 
and he was prepared to spend whatever it took to get the best players and the best team in Britain. So he had Bobby Archibald. He had a kid named Mike Robinson. He had Lewis Young. He had Alan Bailey. He had no guards. (laughs) (laughs) So he told Alan Bailey, it's like, look, is this, when's this contract up? And Alan knew my contract was up after year three. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. David DeBoe had died. Um, and in, I think, February, March, you know, David reached out through Alan and said, hey, would you have, at the end of your contract, would you have any interest in moving to Scotland? And I said, no. And he said, well, why don't you come and talk to me about it? And um, I talked to Alan. Alan liked it. We played Murray, Crystal Palace, and Murray played a home, home and away series. I went up. wasn't a bad place. I kind of liked Edinburgh. It reminded me a bit of San Francisco in terms of its small, intimate way. You know, if you've been to San Francisco, it's not a big place. And Edinburgh, um, Edinburgh is a lot like that. It's a very romantic, kind of cool town. And the one thing I did like when I went up there were the Scots. The Scots are, they are a unique people, but the most loyal um, they don't take shit from anybody. They are tough-minded. And if you're going to be competitive on a bigger stage, you need you need some toughness. And Bobby Archibald was easily the toughest teammate that I played with, I have had a chance to play with. Um, and if you add Lewis Young shooting, and then he added Sam Foggin, then he added Ralton Way, you know, like all of a sudden – you got a crew, you know, you got guys that can play and over five years, we were competitive. Um, you know, we almost beat, you know, um, Milan with Mike and McAdoo and Dino. And, uh, we had, you know, we, we, it, and I had an unusual situation because I said, look, I want you to build this franchise. So I want you to be the GM. I want you to be, um, the head coach in your first year. Um, I hired Paul Provost to be the on-bench coach. And towards the end of the year, I did more playing than I did coaching. Um, and Paul did talk, Paul made all the calls. Um, I realized after that year, I didn't want to do that anymore. I was <laughs> like, yeah, I think I just want to play. And we went and we got Tom Schneeman. And it was a really strange relationship because I was the GM who hired Tom. And yet I was the point guard who was playing. So I also had the responsibility, albeit David would always say, I, I'll do, if I have to talk to Tom, I'll talk to Tom. So you're not in a situation where his best player as the GM is having having issues with the coach. So Tom came. We were really competitive. He got the GB job. He turned that into more money in Germany. And then we got Jody. So very competitive. David wanted to win. He wanted to be the best team in Britain. He wanted to be competitive in Europe. And he used the team as a marketing tool, as corporate entertainment for his clients. When we would travel to Europe or we'd travel to Ireland or we'd travel in the UK, that was that was his marketing tool. I mean, you talked about being the gym and setting up the team, but it wasn't just a bite finding the players and putting it all together. I mean, this was running a business. I mean, how, 
you know, at that age coming in, I mean, you, know, you get your a feel as a player sometimes for how things work, but it's it's a different kind of job. And then if you're treble jobbing it in the first in, in the first year, but I mean, how how useful was that to have that kind of opportunity based on what obviously you've done since? Because you were selling stuff, you know, you were selling sponsors and you're presumably yeah. organizing the kits and every such like, you know, and what was the extent of it and how, how helpful was that in the, in the context of everything that's followed since? Um, very helpful. You know, I had a lot of help. Uh, we had Angie Bossart, who was David's assistant, but really kind of the linchpin, the glue that kept it all together. Um she was heavily involved um obviously david was involved but on sponsorship like i, I kind of felt who better to go talk to sponsors than me you know um i could talk about our team i could talk about the things we could deliver i could talk about whether it be signage and remember the game now has led signage it has a whole host of assets that we didn't have then um, then you were just talking about, hey, we're going to be on TV half a dozen times this year. It's worth the 25,000 pounds that you're going to be spending in terms of impressions. They didn't know. They just, they, like, sponsors were, I want to be involved. And, um, you know, I had the backdrop of David supporting any sponsor. Like, if, if they sponsored us, David would send his business their way. Very educational very informational and quite frankly was inspirational to learn the business in a smaller market where I didn't have as much pressure. Um, all David said is I want to be the best, go be the best. You know, we need cars for the team. So I went out and got Renault to sponsor us with six cars. We need a kit deal. I went to Nike and got a kit deal. Like, you know, outside of that, you know, it was, um, it was just, it was really educational and it's very much relationship driven, which helped me kind of create in my mind, what I wanted relationships to be like. What was it like though, to do business in Edinburgh as, as a person of color coming into city, I mean, I could walk out this door, take me 20 minutes to get into the center of Edinburgh. I, I know it's not a particularly normal environment at the moment of walking down the street, but I could probably not walk past a person of color still in the center of Edinburgh and it was much less multicultural then. What was it like for you coming into that kind of environment? I, I will be honest, the Scots were way more um, accepting of people of color than the English. Um, I've been to Wales, the Wales, I think it's something about the Celtic people who have this kind of we all got to stick together against the English. <laughs> and so anybody Nothing changes. Than, so anybody other than the English, you're with us. Um, and I, you know, I, I quite honestly love the fact that the Scots were um, us against the world. It, there, there are some similarities, you know, people of color often face that. Um, it's more prevalent in professional sports now than ever before, especially the NBA where, you know, 80% of the players are African-American or from Africa or some part of the world um, or players of color. And, you know, on the operation side, it's not really that way. When you go to some cities, it's more accepting than others. Um, 
but I always thought Edinburgh was um, a really cool city. And they were way more open-minded. The Scots are more open-minded, more accepting. They don't, honestly, they cared more about what religious faction you were than they were <laughs> about your couple, right? There were people who would say, I didn't care whether you're you black or green. I care whether you're Catholic or Protestant, you know? Um, and that was, for me, refreshing. Um, most loyal people I've ever met. Like, I, I have friends in Scotland that have been friends and will be friends forever and ever and ever. And nobody that I know can ever take that away from the Scots. When you make a friend in Scotland, they're, they're like they're like the relatives that will not ever leave you, you know? Hey, where are you going? Okay, I'm going with you, you know? <laughs> and, and that made my five years in Scotland heartwarming. My daughter was born there. Um, and we just, we had a really good time. How did you sell the sport though? Because then as now it's a football place, Scotland and the rest of the UK isn't it? Yeah. What was the biggest thing when you had to knock on the door or meet someone, you know, at a party or whatever, you know, who's one of the great unconverted, what was the selling point that you stuck with at that point? So, um, I, I always tried to educate people around what basketball meant in terms of, um, it's inexpensive and easily accessible and it so shapes culture, lifestyle, um, and that, you know, it, it's easy to have a conversation about basketball because at the time, remember, the global game hadn't quite gotten as global as it is now, but you still had people that were identifiable. So you still had Magic, you still had Larry. When you got to the mid eighties, you had Mike. And once those folks became global, conversations became much easier to have when you're knocking on doors. When you talk about basketball, almost everybody in the United Kingdom has either watched or bought a Nike t-shirt, or bought a pair of Air Jordans, or bought a hoodie that says Nike. So the impact of basketball on lifestyle, very much like the impact of football in the United Kingdom or in Germany, it impacts your lifestyle as much as it impacts your sports. So having an open conversation about basketball when you're talking to sponsors and where you're talking to people about buying season tickets or premium tickets was much easier to have because people had some affinity with it. Like you've got jerseys right behind you. You got basketball jersey, you got a football jersey from Arsenal. Well spotted. Like, yeah. That's 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 an affinity that you either grew up with or it's easy to talk about because you see it and people saw more and more basketball. People would talk to me because you did you did we got it that's on the telly, right? Our games were on on television, European Cup games, or Scottish Cup games, or Scottish final games, or British Championship. So it was a visibility, which made it easier. And it's not like people didn't, couldn't, couldn't see me in Scot in Edinburgh. My five years in Scotland, I was the guy that kind of resonated whether you lived in Glasgow <coughs> or Stirling or Dalkeith or Edinburgh. 
I don't know that guy. It's not like we got a bunch of black guys here, and I know that guy. That guy is, is the basketball guy. So it helped. And it made selling the sport much easier. And I do say to people, even today, you know, that basketball kind of transcends most other sports because it is so much easier and so much more affordable and so much you get so much accessibility to the sport because it's inexpensive to play and it's a very aspirational sport you can measure your improvements you you can see the difference between last week and this week the more you play the better you get I mean, you talked about being the face of the sport. I mean, you were a face of the sport. No, it wasn't just in Scotland. It was south of the border as well. I mean, you. As someone said to me today when we were, we were talking about um, questions for this, but someone someone said, you know, you're this incredible celebrity. You were the they were the answer to any basketball trivia question on those sports quizzes on television or a question of sport or whatever. And it must have been very curious to to have that sort of status in a you know in a foreign land where you didn't expect to even really play and suddenly you're the guy that if 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 granny in inverness has to name a player it's not magic johnson it's alton bird i mean that must have been very odd in some way it was it it like it, it's it's kind of mind-boggling when now that i look back on it and i talk to my kids about it because my kids are like my daughter was born in 1985 in scotland we were in scotland and she just turned 34 and even now she kind of laughs and goes dad you you had no idea how how big you were i was like that's because i never really paid attention to it um while i was in it you know i was doing it um and it is weird it you know like my staff here um, with the Long Island Nets, they kind of go back and they find YouTube stuff. And it's like, because I don't really mention it, it's like a chapter in a book that's chapter 24 in a 62 page, 62 chapter book so far. It's like, but they kind of go, oh my God, I had no idea that most of them had no idea I even played. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, you know, going to a foreign country and playing on lots of big stages made, I, I was very grateful. Uh, I will not, uh, you know, there's no other way for me to describe it. I was really grateful that I had the opportunity to play, that we had the opportunity to win, that I had the opportunity to play in some crazy places you know you play at Maccabi Tel Aviv or you play at Panathinaikos or you play at AK or you play in some places like Limoges where you don't know whether you're gonna get out of there alive or not um, for a British team and we're competing um, you know to play against Kukoc and Vladi and some of these early adopters uh, that the NBA drafted was amazing and then you come back home to the uk and you get on a bus and you drive to sunderland and you play against sunderland and you get on a bus and you go back home and we were playing 70 80 games a year all over the place so it is weird when people say that's the geezer you know the east end guys are about that's the geezer that's on the telly every week <laughs> and then when channel four when i had the nba jam session it it just got bananas in because now you couldn't walk outside 
You couldn't walk on the streets of London without some kid walking up to you and going, I saw your show on Saturday. It was really cool. Now I'm going to your game on Saturday night. It's really cool. Because the tabloids were, as they were prone to doing at the time, poking around your bins and such like as well, weren't they? They were. Um, And I was... it's funny because I wrote a standing weekly column for the Daily Mirror. Um, like they were at my house, they would go through my garbage. They would um, drive and see if I was at home late at night. They, they, it was kind of nuts. They would ask coaches. They would call work. Hey, is he in today? Like it was. It was. It was an interesting time. <laughs> I mean, you came back down south for a year to Manchester and went back up to Glasgow Rangers. And, you know, David Murray had that, you know, was involved or, you know, with the football side of things. And I remember talking to the late great Kevin Cadle about this. And you know, he said he felt that was one of the great lost opportunities of British basketball. When you had that very short period of time when there were a few football clubs were tying up with basketball clubs. I mean, it happened slightly later in Newcastle as well but it, that that was the point where there was maybe that synergy that could have been done a la Real Madrid a la Bayern Munich a la Barcelona etc I mean but did you feel because for those who don't remember I mean Glasgow Rangers played for a year and then the t- franchise was moved to Kingston became a huge success but moved did you when you look back did you feel that there was something there that never quite saw its potential in that particular year so the year that I played at Manchester United was a really interesting, it was an eye opener, um, you know, cause United wasn't doing it for the purpose of profit. They were doing it as an extension of the brand. Um, and they were doing it because it was a cool thing to do. Barcelona had a team, Real Madrid had a team, um, Inter Milan was dancing with having a team, you know, um, a couple of the German clubs were, you know, Bayern was dancing with having a team or wanted to have one. So I think, um, I think it was a cool thing to do. It was an extension of their brand. It was an extension of their brand that made them multi-sport um, because they also had handball teams and they had a indoor hockey team and like United was trying to be what Barcelona was. And I, and, and I noticed because I had friends that played for Barcelona, it's like, <clears throat> you know, if we play on a Tuesday night, there's 50 people in the gym. Not that people care, not that Barcelona cares. And those guys are getting paid a lot more money than we got paid. Um, but it was more about how do I extend the brand? I do think there was an opportunity missed. But I also think, you know, our league has has always suffered from just not enough of a financial, a financially sound, sustainable plan. Because this all comes, look, you know and I know that the British are great at administration. <laughs> they will administer you to death. But there's not a commercial head in the place. And if they had a commercial head in the place... You know, the the BBL would be one of the top six leagues in Europe. If there was somebody who had a commercial head about them, who had some authenticity, 
our league from the 80s would have still been successful because it would have transcended time and there would have been the right people with the right process, right? Because the product, you can you can get good players. You can determine what you want it to be. But think about, you know, in the mid-80s and we had a national television contract. Our games were on the BBC. We had probably half dozen really good teams. We had football teams who were sniffing around. And that window between 1985 and 1995 was where the BBL could have really made its bones. And sadly didn't. And missed it. And missed it because commercially, um, you know, we had Carlsberg as a sponsor for, I don't know, eight years, seven years, eight years. Um, You know, it's not like people haven't, haven't been engaged with our game and wanted to see it grow but you gotta you know you gotta provide ROI for people and it can't be impressions because you just don't win against rugby and soccer it's got to be something completely different it's got to be community it's got to be something that creates goodwill for brand and they want it to continue to do so when you went on, and I want to circle back to business and basketball, but when you moved on to Kingston, when Kingston moved from Glasgow, you know, Kevin's a coach, playing in Europe, regarded probably still as the best team that we've ever seen in the BBL. Did it feel? Does that feel for you, for all the teams and the great players that you played with, was that the best team? Yeah, we, we were, there was the 89-90 team that won... I think we won all five championships uh, with Micah Blunt and Martin Clark and self and Alan, Alan wasn't with us yet. He wasn't with us yet. Um, so there was that team. And then there was the 90, 91 team that had Martin Henlon and Colin Irish and Russ Saunders and myself. It was like an all-star team. Um, and Kevin melded us together and, um, those are the two best teams I think ever that ever played um, because to win all five, you got to, and play in Europe, you, you got to be prepared for an 80 game season. Um, and we, we created some really kind of interesting dilemmas for British basketball. Um, you know, there were some people said it's never good to have a dominant franchise that wins everything all the time. And my response to that was, that is not true. Um, You go through the history of basketball in any league, anywhere on the planet, and whether it's NBA, Spain, France, the the same teams are good for a reason. There's domination for a reason. You're either good at attracting players, you either have a ton of money and you can attract players, or you are really well-coached and you really have good process in place to develop skills to create a a team that can't be beaten over time. So Kingston had it, you know, for five years. Like Kevin put us all together and said, you will get along. We will succeed. Um, even despite the fact that we were woefully underfunded, you know, that 
we did it despite having money. We had people that wanted us to be good, you know, um, Clearmark and Richard King, and and then we had Barry Dow, and <clears throat> but you know what gets in the way of winning is sometimes it's a little bit of ego, and it's sometimes it's like, well, maybe I shouldn't sign this guy because I can't pay him. And you you go out on a limb, you take the risk. Owners have taken risks because they hope that the team will create more revenue and income by being good as opposed to doing it on sound business practices, which here's what I can afford. Here's what I'll be able to afford. And I'm not going to wish. I'm going to do what I can. So... One question we had in from someone who name him, you know, you'll immediately recognize Vince McCauley. But he said, Kevin always talked about the, the games that Kingston played in Europe with, with Tracy Pearson. And give us a flavor of some of those stops you guys made. Because, you know, it was, you know it, obviously it's very commonplace these days in other countries in Europe, BBL not so much. But you know, what were those European adventures like? Because you were guys that sometimes ended up in what of those days were very unknown spots. Yeah. Um, so it's funny because you play we played one year at hopwell um it was right on the border the lebanon israel border we we went at home no we lost at home and we have to go there it's uh hopwell galil elion we have to go there to win it's the second leg of a you know, in the quarterfinals, winner goes through to the the Euro 16, two pools of eight. And you can see Lebanon from across the, the water. And we had to play on a kibbutz. <laughs> it was crazy. It was, we win the game um, on the last second shot. Carl Brown was phenomenal for us that night. Um, and we win the game. And, like, we were so happy we won the game. But we end up, like, on this kibbutz. Like, how do you celebrate on a kibbutz? Like, you can't. Well, you can. You could try. And, of course, if you take a group of guys who are celebratory in their nature, you put them on a kibbutz, and all of a sudden you've got all of the rule-breaking you could possibly imagine on the kibbutz. But... Like, that was one trip. You know, we played in France. We played in, I I can remember us playing against Tony Kukoc in split. Like, they were loaded. They had Kukoc. They didn't have Dino Raja, but he had, like, three other guys that ended up playing in the NBA. But Tony was 6'11". He weighed 200 pounds soaking wet. This is before Chicago. And going to split was like a real eye-opener. You have to remember when we were playing, the wall hadn't been down that long. (laughs) So there were a lot of countries that you kind of went, man, this is kind of a third-world country. And you forget that, you know, they were under communist rule forever, except for the last three, four, five years. Um, We played in Bulgaria once, um, and... It was so interesting because sometimes you go in these places and they allowed smoking in the gym. <laughs> Which they did in a lot like, of places in Eastern Europe. Probably yeah, still, like, still do, actually, in a few. 
you would play in Bulgaria or Romania and they'd allow smoking in the gym so you can't breathe. I played in France once and they were actually cooking, barbecuing. It wasn't a barbecue. It was kind of <laughs> like a – but you could smell the food and it was it was literally – you could see the smoke, tangible smoke in the building while you're playing. Like some of the experiences you have when you go on the road are – are just unreal like and no quite honestly when we were guilford and we, we i think we lost all of our games in 92 93 it was tracy and myself and we were injured we were tired we had just won the year before i think we'd won all five championships i think martin henlin was hurt carl miller was with us like it was just a really difficult year but we had a we had a ball like you know, there's nothing you could trade for the experiences of going on the road. Like we went to Russia and we won. That was that was the most incredible night because never had a British team beaten a Russian team. And Kevin took us over there and and we ended we we won over the two legs, but we had. We had almost every bottle of champagne in that hotel um, in rubles. And every time we bought a bottle, it would go up 20 rubles. It was crazy. <laughs> Ownership was happy. We had made it. Um, we were, you know, all of a sudden we were in, you know, the eight, the eight teams that went through. And they had Limoges and Barcelona and Pop Split. And all of a sudden you're now one of those. How'd the English team get in? So we like those memories. Like somebody asked me, like you should write a book. I was like, they'd never believe the book. They would never <laughs> believe it. It would. They would never believe the book as I wrote it. You know, they just wouldn't. People wouldn't believe some of the places we played, some of the things that have happened. How my career kind of went from just playing to TV and. Then the three-on-three craze, you know, all of a sudden, I was the first guy to run the NBA's Hoop It Up events. I ran the biggest three-on-three event in the history of British basketball at London Docklands before it was finished at, at O2 Arena in the parking lot. <laughs> I ran a thousand-team three-on-three event, and the first time... Michael Oluwakandi ever played organized basketball was at my three-on-three event. And did he look like a future number one draft pick? Not at all. No. I don't think, even as a number one draft pick, I don't think he anticipated going as number one draft pick. And he played like that. Michael's a good dude. He's a really nice kid, but completely out of his depth. In terms of, I mean, he made enough money. I hope he kept enough of it, but completely out of his depth. When you um, when you look at the guys that you played with, and that's a listener question from Kapil Kumar. But of all the players that you played with, who would you have given the ball to win the game? <sighs> Alan Cunningham, who is still right up beside you as one of the greats. Yeah, I, I mean, just my opinion, I think 
pound for pound, night in, night out, um, Allen's probably the best player that I've played with or against, only because he was a Swiss Army knife because before you called it a Swiss Army knife. He he can guard he can guard one through five. He's a really good rebounder. He's a very awkward offensive player, but he knows how to score. He knew how to score. And he was the guy that if you needed a play, you needed a, a stop, a block shot, a rebound, a basket, a tip in, you knew Allen could do it. You knew and you knew that, you know, Allen would do it and he would do it again and he'd do it again. And then you kind of start to say, I think this this dude here, he gets it. And he was the quintessential teammate. He hated to lose at anything. He had to lose in practice. Like if if you beat Allen in five on five in your scrimmaging, he was he was like, we're not going home till I win. And that made him in my mind, it made him the best player who's ever played in Britain because he was night in, night out. He was consistent, and he did it over a period of years. He did it wherever he went. You know, he did it at Worthing. He did it at Solent. He did it with us at Kingston. He did it at Ranger. Wherever he went, teams won, or at least they were very competitive. You finished up kind of appropriately back at Palace and when they were playing Division One at that stage. And you know, and then that's that's when the kind of chapter two all really of this you know takes off. And you and I were briefly crossed over in NFL Europe or World League it maybe still was called them and I was at the Scottish Claymore's front office, you were at the the London slash England monarchs. And it, you know, it was an interesting environment. You know, we both we could trade war tales on, on that league for, for hours, but Obviously, it was a hard sell when the league came back in, you know, in in London as it was in Edinburgh at the time, and and yeah. But I guess for me, I know from my career, I learned a lot from that experience because of your interfacing with a, one of the well, probably the best league structure in the world in the NFL, you know, along with the NBA. But it was also quite tough, and there were a lot of mistakes people made, and a lot of things that went wrong. But learning points, etc. What did you take? From that time, amid, amid the difficulties that there were, most of which were not in the control of anyone in this in, in this country, but what did you take from that experience? So, I, I I took away that the NFL is a very powerful organization that it owns three days a week here in the United States. It owns Sunday. Like, you know, if you were to ask the NBA, you know, thirty years ago, what's the one thing you do? They, they, Probably David Stern probably would say, I would love to possibly avoid playing when the NFL is playing. So I took away from NFL and then NFL Europe that remember the context under which it was designed to develop players. Now, it just so happened that Germany, you know, the Rhine Fire, um, Frankfurt, um, and Dusseldorf, all of them had a distinct advantage in that they had been cultivating football for many, many years on bases and around bases. And, you know, they had a fan base. They, they really did have a fan base because as much as football is popular in Germany, American football still 
has always been pretty popular. The UK capitalized on it when in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when football, soccer was having all of the hooligan issues that it was having. Hillsborough happened. Everybody was kind of running away from soccer like, no, nah, I don't want to go. I can't go to games. It's not safe. <clears throat> I can go to American football and I'll watch it on TV and then I'll go. And from 89, 90 to 93, people were going to football games like, Where, why are you going to football? You don't even understand what you're looking at, right? But they were more about the experience than they were about football. When we came back, soccer had already come back in a big way. And they had figured out a way to at least mitigate some of the hooliganism, which meant now you had American football. The NBA was starting to get into its prime. Jordan was at the end of his career. So basketball had a hold on any urban kids or any kids that lived in a urban suburban environment. Um, soccer had bounced back. Rugby was getting a bit bigger. League and union were getting a little bit bigger. Um, and it's hard when you have three teams in Germany, one team in Amsterdam, and two teams in the United Kingdom, one of which is in the center of London with 18 other professional sports teams. Where do you fit them on the landscape? Because if you think about it, how many Premier League teams are there in London? Five? Four, five, six? Depends on the year. But right. Yes, a lot. And then you have Division One soccer teams, and then you had a hockey team, a couple of basketball teams, six rugby union teams, a rugby league. Like, where does American football fit on the landscape? It's not every week. Um, and that's the tough sell. I, I took away that I don't think people knew or cared that it wasn't NFL football or wasn't the real NFL, but they cared enough that football was important to their lives and it didn't transfer from what they watched. When you watch football, it's made for television to the live experience. And then towards the end of the London Monarchs, you know, we decided we would try and do the whole England Monarchs thing. You know, people have by that time had already said, all right, I'm going over to some other sport now. I'm a, I'm a ma I've made my choice. I'm either going back to football or I'm going to go to basketball or I'm going to go to rugby. They'd made their choices. So I learned about marketing, about what to do and what not to do. I learned about messaging, about how the message of football needed to be clearer. Um, I learned about fan engagement how important that is, how to really engage with fans. The NFL does it brilliantly here. Like it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in news cycles now with ESPN and, you know, with all of the sports networks, you know, now it's much easier. Back then you and I didn't have a sports network to engage in. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There was no TikTok, Snapchat, none of that. We were doing it by phone calls and, hey, would you mind watching us? That's Change how we did days. it. Yeah. And, and you, Go ahead. After that, though, you, 
you were, you made the decision to take the family back to the to the US. Yeah, it's been an incredibly diverse career, but a lot of it's still been within basketball and the NBA and the WNBA. And you were you were at the Kings for for a while. You were at the Atlanta Dream in the WNBA. And before we finish off with the the Nets, what's what's the secret to selling women's hoops? Because it's it's still even in Europe the big teams are still bankrolled, even, you know, and it's, it's still a niche industry. What did you learn there? And an audience, obviously in Atlanta, as you and I both know, is a tough city for professional basketball on the male side. Correct. So never mind the women's side. But what, what did you take there from how you can find an audience that wants women's basketball? Um, well, Atlanta, as you rightly say, is a very tough sports market. It's really a college football mm-hmm. town. The majority of people's lifestyles around sports are based around college football and where they went to college. So the Braves, the Falcons, the Hawks, the only team that's cracked it of late is Atlanta United. And they they are immense. They were coming to the market as I was leaving, thank God. Um, if you really want to watch how to play, you want to learn how to play, You'd go to a WNBA game. If you want to take your kids to watch basketball, you go to the WNBA. The NBA is about to show. The WNBA is about to game. Um, it had it, so a couple of things it has going for it. It has the best players in the world, bar none. There's no question that WNBA is the best league in the world by a long, long, long shot. How does that transfer? That's been the $50 million question because when I worked for the Dream in Atlanta, winning, we made the finals my first season. Um, and that didn't necessarily move the needle in terms of ticket sales and sponsorship. Um, I think audiences shift. Um, you know, th- there's a strong LGBT grouping that buy tickets. What I found in Atlanta, there were more and more men who bought tickets who wanted to take their teams to watch WNBA basketball because the quality of basketball was more informational and more educational for their teams. Like cut, pass, cut, screen, simple, fundamental basketball. And I think as you, as like, there are a million people who would tell you that if you were betting that the WNBA would still be around, that they would have told you you were crazy. But the league's almost 25 years old now. And frankly, they're ahead of where the NBA was when it was 25 years old. Because um, if you remember in the late 70s and early 80s, the NBA was in trouble. Magic, Larry, and Michael saved the NBA because they were playing in front of a couple hundred people. They were playing. It was tape delay. I think the WNBA will be okay, but it is a hard sell because you have to find the right consumer who understands and wants to be a part of a different type of NBA experience. These are the best players. They play in great arenas. I think it's just going to take a little bit more time for it to transfer. The Sparks do a really good job. The woman who oversees ticket sales there is Natalie White, and we work together in Atlanta, and she's one of the best in the league. The Sparks were averaging, I don't know, nine, ten thousand 10,000 a game. It's all about 
you know, and they have Candace Parker and they have Neka Gumike and they got Shanae Gumike. But it's all about how much time you spend developing your community roots. And if you do that in the WNBA, and I think most teams get that, then you have a shot at it. The only part that's hard to, to sell is it's a summer sport and most people don't want to be inside. But I think overall, I think it has sustainable growth. I just think, you know, we have a national contract, which they are close to now with ESPN. Most of the games are on ESPN. I think the league will be okay. The new commissioner is a superstar. Um, Kathy's really good. Uh, our organization bought the New York Liberty, and we just got Sabrina and Nescu. So, like, I expect our franchise to grow. And our franchise is 22 years old. I've switched so, sides in the city from next kingdom to next kingdom. Correct. So um, I think they'll be good. And I think there's going to be more con connectivity between the Liberty and the Brooklyn Nets because they play in the same building. There, You know, our office in Brooklyn has Brooklyn Nets and New York Liberty staff in it. And so I think the, the collaboration and the opportunity for the Liberty to grow more further, and our ownership is really committed to it. They are really committed to the Liberty. I think Jim, I think Jim Dolan was committed to it. And, you know, it's, it's much easier to stay committed to it. If your primary source of, of revenue and your primary interest, which would be the New York Knicks were more successful. I think he wanted to spend more time focused on the Knicks. Um, so for us, we've got a real opportunity with the Liberty. And I think the WNBA has legs. I personally think it has long-term legs. Um, just needs a little bit more time. And I think the more integration with the NBA, the better for the league. Last thing, I mean, you're with the Nets organization on, you know, specifically vice president of business operations at the Long Island Nets, which is the NBA G League affiliate and yeah, you know, for most of us here we see it you know it's it's a league that players come in and out of maybe get call-ups to the, the NBA but you know on that on the grind what's the sales pitch to get people to watch the games oh, I've been to a few games and it's not it's never been particularly big big attendances it's never felt like a league that stands on its own two feet is that a perception is that a I guess an objective that's changing to get people to support back it commercially with their fan fandom, et cetera. I mean, how's, where's the league going, I guess. So consider when I started the long Island Nets in 2016, 17, there were 16, 17 teams my first year turned into 21 and, and in four years we now have 28 teams including a new franchise in Mexico mm. City um, the pro path uh, team the developmental team that just got Jalen Green and Isaiah Todd um, they will for all intent purposes be a team that develops talent um, that the league will run um I think by all tools of measurement, the G League contextually is about two or three things. Number one, it is primarily used to develop talent for the NBA, 
ownership team. So to give an example for us in, I don't know, since in four years, since we started, we have had six players play in the NBA that came from our program, six players that have played in Europe that came from our program, six coaches and a GM that came from our Long Island Nets program. The way you measure that success is Trajan Langdon, who was our GM and became executive of the year is now the GM of New Orleans, right? Um, Damian Cotter, who's an Australian, who was an assistant with us is now the head coach at Windy City. Um, so the job of developing talent, skills, character, all falls with us. Now, the extension of the brand for the Brooklyn Nets on Long Island, Long Island's a big market. Long Island is 2.3 million people. Uh, it has the largest township in the United States, um, the town of Hempstead, where our offices are. 800,000 people. There are a million people that live within 20 minutes of us. You start looking at it demographically, there's a market there. Um, it takes time to develop. If you were to go to a Texas Legends game, you'd have a different conversation with me than if you went to uh, Erie Bay, right? Texas Legends average about 5,600 a game. Um, their games are as much about to show it as it is about the game but they've had the same number of successes at developing talent for the Mavs. You also are developing talent off the floor in terms of front office executives. So ticket sales, account executives, sponsorship sales, sponsorship activation, finance folks, business operate. So I get your question about what would make the G League become more popular, but internally, like in this country, you know, I think the G League is pivoting from what what used to be called the second best league in the world to becoming the league that has the best young talent in the world. Because you could go to Greece and say, well, the Greek league is pretty competitive. And, you know, outside of Maccabi Tel Aviv, the Israeli league is pretty competitive. And in Spain, there's Real Madrid and Barcelona. But our league is by design an NBA product. So, you know, I kind of, I hold on to these when I started this franchise. We try to make tickets affordable. We try to make our athletes accessible and prepare them for the next level. And we try to remind people that you can play here. You know, the, the quality of play is better than it's ever been. The quality of coaching is better. Analytics is better. Like we mirror exactly what the NBA is doing. It's not an accident that Sean Marks, our GM with Brooklyn and Matt Riccardi, our GM with the Long Island Nets speak the same lingo. Our players run the same actions. Our coaches talk the same way. And all of a sudden you've got success off the court. We've grown. We're growing every year, but we're a four year old franchise. You know, Texas has been around 11 years, Santa Cruz, you know, if you're a Santa Cruz Warriors fan, you have the, the good fortune of, of tying yourself into a Warriors brand that's won three out of the last five championships.
you know, Maine this year, Taco Fall. You know, their attendance went up, I think, something like 40%. So, again, with we had growth. We're going to have a team in Mexico City next year. Um, you know, you start adding all of that up. I think the future is really bright for the league. I think the players, you know, are going to be a part of a union. Um, and I think the fundamentals of what we do are the same. We, we, if you were to watch our game at Long Island, you'd see the same elements that you would see in Brooklyn. And that's by design. You know, we, we want to look and feel like an NBA product and we do. And so do the rest of the teams. Some teams do it better than others, but we try to do it as well as an NBA team. We put on the same show. And you'll be hoping that two guys called Kevin and Kyrie might show up occasionally for a game next year and help help things along a little. Well, well it's funny, you know, when, when our NBA guys come to our games, and they do, like we had DeAndre Jordan, we've had D'Angelo Russell, we've had Jared Dudley, we've had Nets guy, we had Garrett Temple, we've had guys come to our games and fans love it. You know, you, you just, I think people put a lot on attendance when in fact people forget why the G League exists. And the G League is by design. Look, there have been games, honestly, where you come to a game and you could see seven guys who are NBA players trying to get minutes. Where's the best place for them to get minutes? With us. You know, we have Donan Musa, who's from Bosnia. We have Rodi Karuch from Latvia. We've had um, Nick Claxton, who's our first round or early second round draft pick. At one stage, we had those three guys and two two-way guys. Um, so it was really Brooklyn Nets kind of ended the bench guys with Theo Pinson. So we had six guys that were NBA contracted players. They're making NBA money playing on Long Island. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think Sharif is, is going to help us, and I think Adam is super committed. Adam Silver is super committed to the G League. And do you ever practice with the team just have a shooting drill if it's for the hell of it? Um, I shoot shots. I don't know. Um, <laughs> They've been trying to get me to get out there, but I'm like, nah, I'm good. I, I, I gotta pay. I gotta pay. I gotta pay for that at some stage. Um, and I'm, you know, every time I do that, my wife kind of looks at me like, really? Like, nah, you don't want to do that. So, <laughs> I'm gonna let you out of here in one last question because um, we appreciate your time today. You, you still keep in touch with so many folk back here, and you know, you still got your eye on this and. With all the experience that you've got, if, as many people hope, the BBL at some point gets a commission, would you be interested in the job and what would you do in day one? Ooh, that would be an interesting opportunity. First of all, obviously, I, I, I have a historical perspective of the UK, of UK basketball scene. I think, secondly, I would certainly, if the commissioner's job is to act on behalf of the teams and owners, which is what the commissioner's job is here, whether it be football, whether it be the NBA, whether it be baseball, you have got to get with the owners and determine what they want 
this league to look like and then what they want basketball to look like. So what do you want the league to look like? What do you want the league to look like financially? And then what do you want basketball to look like? Because what the NBA has done brilliantly is they have created a platform by which every kid can play and every kid has an affinity. So if you're in Newcastle, you have a platform to play and you are connected to your local team like nothing you've ever seen. So I'd get with the owners, get a vision, do some some make some make make some suggestions, hear their feedback because what you know, Jamie Edwards is going to do in Manchester is different than what Vince is going to do. Um, and what Vince wants to do is different than what Paul Blake wants to do in Newcastle. So are you an ownership group that understands that if this league is going to thrive, you all have to be, you, you don't have to agree on everything, but you got to determine what direction you want this to go. And I don't think that's ever happened. I think there have been the strong are the strong and the weak just disappear. And then there's somebody else who comes in and, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to spend a ton of money. What do you want growth to look like? Where would you start? Has it grown? Why is it retracted? You know, you got to have hard conversations very early on, knowing that, you know, you got to have a really good labor lawyer because, you know, if you want this to work and you want to develop talent, what's it going to look like? What do you want your staffs to look like? Who's going to sell this? You know, how do you build out a, a, a commissioner's office that can monetize a product that is it at its best? And what do we need to be at its best? You know, how's it work? It's kind of like, I think the path of, of that, my dear friend and rabbi Ed Percival was going down. How do we, how do we kind of mirror or look at or do some of the things that the NBA did when things weren't so good. What's the risk? How do we find the next Alton Bird or Alan Cunningham or somebody that can really kind of turn the country on its ear? How do you luck into that? You know, are there, look, I think there's good enough British players that if they have training, nutrition, all the things that we do at the G League level, why wouldn't they stay? Why wouldn't they why wouldn't they play in the UK and turn them and their families into household names? You gotta have some of that. So the so, all the owners that are listening to this, there's his pitch. He wants the job, sign him up. <laughs> You'll want a ton but of money, like, but you know, small details. But the funny thing is, like, the UK has some distinct advantages that other leagues don't have, frankly. Like you don't have the language issue. There's a history. There's there's all kinds of things that go for it. The problem is, like, how do you go and get a TV deal when so many people are jaded with the failed attempts of the past? Like, you got to have some credibility to walk into Bob Shannon at the BBC, or you, you got to have you got to have some credibility to walk into ITV or Channel Like, you know, do you have to go back to tape delay? Can you fill buildings? What's it take? Because I personally think the sweet spot for buildings is about 2,500. Mm. I don't think you can play, you know, 
consistently in buildings that are 10,000 or 15,000. You can't, if you can fill them for Ariana Grande, great. But that doesn't mean you're going to fill them on a Monday night versus, you know, a Manchester versus Leicester, you know, game. I think 2,500 is about the right. And if you could get all the teams to get in a 2,500 seat building and match your finances to that and sponsorship and get a TV deal, yeah. We can all dream. It would be nice yeah. if BBL could back to where it was, but we shall yeah. see what happens. Alton, it's been a pleasure in your company as always. And continued continued safety, first of all, during the current pandemic, a continued success in the greater New York area. And um, thanks for coming on and joining us. All right. Thank you, Mark. That's it for this edition of the MVP cast. You can get all our previous editions via our website at mvp247.com or subscribe via your usual podcast provider. Another edition coming very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, it's bye for now.